This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome to Growth and Scale Insiders. I'm your host, Dan Dillard. On this series, we will be exploring the constantly changing world of organizational leadership and financial transformation. On today's episode, we are sitting down with Jeff Hiddeman and Scott Gardner. Jeff is a current principal at Bridgepoint Consulting, and Scott is the CFO of Fluence Bioengineering. From best practices in financial mergers to explaining modern-day data rooms, Jeff and Scott tell me all about the details and trends that come with running an organization, specifically during times of mergers and acquisitions. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the show. So Jeff, I'd like to start with some background. Sure. Yeah. So what really attracted me to Bridgepoint was really the team and kind of family culture of the organization. Uh, when I first met with one of the other partners, Michael Johnson, I was struck by how you know natural the conversation was and talking with him about the, really the values, the core values of the organization. It, it really was about empowering its employees, uh, being behind them and having their back at all times and, and really treating each other like family. Um, and, and that really resonated with me. I was looking for a place that, you know, I wanted to call home for a long time, uh, a place that I would be challenged and, and certainly work on great clients and, and improve my professional skills, but also another place where I wasn't treated as a number, uh, but really treated as a key member of the team. And so, you know, that as I've moved into my role as a principal at Bridgepoint has been probably the number one thing that I've used that's kind of driven how I wanted to manage Mm -hmm. and and grow the team. And and so, you know, we've got people that, you know, leave what we call boomerangs. They leave Bridgepoint to go pursue another endeavor and they come right back pretty soon after (laughs) because, because of that culture, because of the people they work with. And, and that is usually one of the most proud moments when we have a boomerang that comes back and they say, you know, I've worked at three or four other places and I've just never found another organization like Bridgepoint. To actually have a term for that speaks volumes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Scott, your turn. Can you give us some background on Fluence Bioengineering and your role there? You bet. Good to be here. So I'm the CFO at Fluence Bioengineering. I've been there about three years now and I was brought in as part of my hiring process to get prepared for an M&A process. So this topic today is very germane to what we did at Fluence recently. Mm -hmm. Fluence itself is a uh, a manufacturer. They make LED lighting fixtures, um, particularly for the horticulture space. So that would include things like commercial agriculture, which would be um, lights that would help make plants grow inside of a greenhouse destined for the grocery store. Or it would be Vertical farming, which is a brand new fun industry where they're starting to take over buildings and grow up on floor after floor Mm -hmm. as opposed to out, like has always been done. And a third industry that a lot of people and gets a lot of talk is the cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. Certain legal states in the United States, Canada, other countries where cannabis has gone legal, either for medicinal purposes or recreational use. Yeah. I imagine that's blown up. Very, very fast growing. Yeah. So I imagine that's a really expanding business right now, the cannabis industry. I just kind of read articles all the time about how quick that's growing. So you guys would be more like people selling shovels to the gold miners? Absolutely. So we don't actually touch the plant. Mm -hmm. We make lights, and they can be used for any number of purposes, like I mentioned before. But in this case, uh, they can't grow the cannabis outside in the legal states. They need a contained environment, and that's where the lights come in. Oh, very interesting. 
That's really great. Thanks for uh, sharing a little bit of that background. Um, so now the topic at hand. So this is something I've been really curious about for a long time. Um, I think Richard Gere made it popular back at Pretty Woman 30 years ago when he was you know, buy, doing mergers and acquisitions. And at that point, 30 years ago, I was like, what is that? Right. And over the years, I've learned a little bit more about mergers and acquisitions, but still there's this curiosity around what it is. And uh, so it's great to talk about in this show. So Jeff, you consult on, with companies who are going through uh, M&A, from what I understand, they're rigorous and detailed undertakings. Can you take it through a typical client engagement? So first I'll start by saying, you know, it's critical to not shortchange and fast track the requirements gathering and design planning phase. Uh, typically when two companies kind of merge or one acquires another, there's a tendency for people to want to get them integrated quickly, um, get the processes set up, make sure the systems are functioning together, and, and really be able to show that we've got the systems and businesses together. Look mm -hmm. how great it is. The reality is, a heavy amount of due diligence has to be performed up front to make sure that you're getting aligned on people, on process, you know, sales and marketing, human resources. There's a lot of different elements that come into play when you're integrating two businesses together. And the biggest mistake I think, or one mistake we see is people trying to fast track that, not really giving enough time and energy into making sure that processes and, and change management is put in place to really get those businesses uh, functioning and operating together and, and identifying where there's gaps, um, getting aligned on what is really needed from a overall system standpoint, but also a process standpoint. When you shortchange requirements gathering, when you shortchange the diligence up front, there's a cascading effect to the results that you see. You'll end up with subpar business decisions that are made. You'll end up with systems that don't do everything that you'd expect. And really, you'll end up with management not seeing the results that they really hoped for mm -hmm. when they um, went into the acquisition. So assuming the right, right amount of planning is done, truly the integration of those activities, the configuration of systems really works pretty well. It's it's amazing how well people do um, designing to a system or designing to a process when there's very clear objectives, clear mm -hmm. outcomes, clear milestones that need to be hit. It's when there's uncertainty, when there's not a clear objective um, or goal um, because not enough due diligence has been performed up front where people end up not being able to deliver or execute what they want. makes a lot of sense. It makes me think you've got two different companies, and at some point there was a decision that, okay, we've got to either merge or there's one's going to acquire the other, and they're used to doing things their own way. And if you just say, okay, just get together and play, and it kind of reminds me of a football team yeah. you know, <laughs> playing together. It's like I'm used to playing this way, I'm used to playing that way. But you get a new coach and says, here's what we're going to play. You both need to learn this play. Yep. And and essentially, in layman's terms, that's what you're talking about, is, is you, you're bringing that new plan and says, here's here's the best way for us to kind of sync up. And That's exactly right. Yeah, a lot of times we'll see, you know, two software companies that come together. Well, what could be so different about two software companies? They both sell software. They both should have very, fairly similar revenue recognition needs, billing needs, service needs. The reality is every company is unique mm -hmm. and should should be treated as such. And so you may find that those two teams that you're talking about is not two NFL football teams coming together trying to operate. 
it may actually be an NFL football team and a rugby team. <laughs> and there's a lot of similarities, but there's definitely some differences, and there needs to be alignment amongst those different organizations on process and how things are going to be done going forward to make sure that, you know, the, the systems and process and procedures that's put in place, you know, really works for the, the new collective group. That makes a ton of sense. Scott, you've been in corporate finance for, what, 20 years plus? Yeah, it's been a long time now. So would you take us to, through some of the M&A strategies you've seen in the market? Yeah, and, and just to extend what we talked about earlier, I think one of the ways that I look at this is there's the before the transaction and mm-hmm. the after the transaction. And some of what he just spoke to was the after the transaction. But another thing that can cause failure, or at least not an optimal situation, is not doing the preparation and much of that is the due diligence before the transaction. Mm-hmm. Because if one of the other things we didn't speak to yet is the intangible factor of culture at these companies. Yeah. That can create two different organizations right there. Yeah. And if you aren't looking very carefully at the intangible of the culture of right. the two companies, if there's not going to be a good fit there, it's probably not wise to continue. That's huge. It, you know, it's absolutely huge. And so that's completely off of what we had been talking about. But if you look at the before and the after – for someone like me that's going into a company knowing that we're probably going to go through an M&A process, mm-hmm. it's very important to do all of the prep work up front. Mm-hmm. So if I am intending to sell this company, it's incumbent on me to spend months of work prepping the the audit that needs to take place so that you have some financials you can show the acquiring company, the data room that you need to set up now and put all of the documents that someone's going to want to look at during the due diligence phase and so forth. Because if you don't have that prepped and ready to go when the bright lights of the process come on, it can get really ugly fast. Yeah, and then all the things, I, I, I agree 100% with what he said, then after the transaction, now you have to bring those two hopefully culturally aligned entities together and you don't want to speed that up too fast because if you rush it, you'll many times you're talking about a larger company and a smaller company. Mm-hmm. And if the larger company tries to speed that up too much, they can effectively kill the little company wow. by burying them with process, yeah. with data, with requests and so forth. You need to let it develop at its own pace within reason, but at a pace that won't uh, take down the smaller company that's, that's a, been acquired. That's a great point. I mean, you, you think about that as like you've got so many more people and resources in the bigger company. Yeah, I mean, one anecdote. Yeah, one anecdote. Yeah, sorry. One, one anecdote with a company that I've heard about um, is there was a little company that got acquired. They had maybe 15 people. Mm-hmm. They had a very valuable technology. Mm-hmm. And the acquiring company was a multi-billion dollar company. And they came in day one with 25 people in a company that only had 15. And they started telling them all the things they needed to do. And it wow. just completely overwhelmed them. So they needed to slow that down, wow. handle the legal and accounting stuff first. Mm-hmm. Then we can address HR. Then we can address all the various work streams mm-hmm. that are involved in integrating one company into another. Wow, that's really interesting. It makes me really think there's just too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes. And we know how that ends. So that's very interesting per- uh, perspective. Jeff, since you work, and by you I mean uh, Bridgepoint, work with many companies that uh, come to a crossroad by selecting a go-forward strategy in their technology and systems to the combined company, I wonder what some of the the trends you are seeing in the area of M&A. Sure. Yeah, I'd say one of the biggest trends we're seeing is a desire to consolidate, you know, a hairball of disparate applications and business processes into a smaller set of industry-leading applications. So certainly myself being more on the technology space, Many times we see companies that are going through an acquisition and, you know, there could be a business that's been around 5, 10, 20 years that over the course of that time, they've built up 
dozens and dozens of applications that do a real select set of functionality, right? And they're homegrown, they're on-premise. It's a, a nightmare for the IT manager and the IT team to manage that. And so the ones that do this well when they're going through an acquisition really take this acquisition activity as that opportunity to look internally, look at the systems they're using, identify what do they really need to operate, what's core to their business operations, and what you know enables them to, uh, to thrive in the business markets. And, and what is really just, we've always done it this way, so we need this application because we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. And so those companies that really look internally and try to streamline and standardize their business process and leverage more kind of off-the-shelf applications, streamlining and, and really consolidating the number of applications is, is really a key trend that we see. Uh, typically, you know, SaaS applications, cloud-based tools that you see today, very commonplace, but a lot of these companies getting acquired have been around long enough mm-hmm. that they have significantly more proprietary applications. And so there really needs to be a technology transformation to update that application stack, simplify it, and you know make sure that the process that's been put in place is leveraging kind of current state leading principles and practices in the industry. It makes me think about even the medical industry where a lot of these doctors had to upgrade their systems, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have this in regular business as well, where you have certain businesses that we've just operated this way for like 30 years and it works well for us. But then now the acquiring company or the merging company is like, no, we've got all these brand new tools and the time it takes, I would imagine, to kind of get the new team to step up the the technology game. Exactly. And so, you know, one one example I'd say is, you know, when you have two applications that are integrated back and forth, you really have one integration, right? It's going back and forth. You add a third application that now needs to integrate with those two. Now you have three integrations that need to be performed, one to each of those. Mm-hmm. You add a fourth application. So the more applications you have, the more overhead, the, the greater cost and resources that are needed to support those. And so, you know, we have these companies that they have 25 applications and really leveraging this to s- simplify that, streamline it down to, you know, maybe it, there's five core applications. And that makes management of that organization so much better. And quite frankly, you're, you're leveraging new age technology and, and systems that have built in business process that you no longer have to do things one way because that's what, the way we've always done it because a developer 15 years developed it in a particular way. You can leverage what the industry is using and, and follow kind of standard business process. What about you, Scott? Have you seen any uh, uh, trends in, in the industry? Absolutely a few. And so one, to pick up on what Jeff was talking about right there. So when you put together multiple systems like that, not only is the complexity harder, but from a legal and accounting standpoint, I always think about what is the inherent risk for data problems. So when I go to do an audit and I have to be able to point to good, verifiable information, mm-hmm. numbers, data, et cetera, you increase your risk with more systems that way too. So another thing that I would say, switching gears a little bit to the question you asked um, in terms of trends, yes, um, another trend from a technology standpoint that's used in the M&A industry now is the data rooms. So when I said data room a little while ago, I think back in the day people used to picture literal conference rooms where the attorneys, the finance people, and so forth would show up and they would have lots of paper documents and they would go through them and so forth. That has transformed over the last few decades now to 
online data rooms. And so nobody has to leave their workplace anymore. The lawyers stay in their law offices and the accountants stay where they are. And the, the respective businesses stay where they are. And everybody logs into a website and they load documents in there and they review the documents and so forth. And that has very much sped up and made much more efficient the due diligence process nowadays in M&A. So, Scott, beyond technology, what else are you seeing in the MA world? Yeah, and so I think there's some developments that have happened over the last one or two decades on that. I mentioned um, making more electronic, the data room due diligence process. I think that's a big one that's really transformed the industry. I, I think another one that's really key is how picking the right investment banker to work with, if you are either buying companies or selling companies, Finding that right fit between your own company culture and whoever that investment bank that you're going to work with to do the transaction is key. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, if you are hoping to sell your company, trying to get the banker's help to create competition in the market okay. so that it's not one-on-one -on -one with a potential acquiring company, you create the element of competition so that hopefully the purchase price goes up, yep. you get a better deal in the end with better mm -hmm. terms. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on for some time now, but I think it's really starting to come to a head, so to speak, in terms of the process. Yeah, and then the last thing I would mention, this is more of a, um, a finer point, but there are some changes that are happening as it relates to the terms of a, an M&A deal nowadays. So, for instance, one example I would give is there are now insurance policies that you can buy at the time of the transaction called reps and warranties insurance. Mm -hmm. And as a seller, you will give a list of things to the company buyer called reps and warranties, things that I say I won't do or things I didn't do or that I did do, okay. and you attest to those. And during the next year or two years, if the buyer feels like they can come back and say, you didn't do this, they'll take money back from the transaction. So now you can put an insurance policy in place. It's oh. called reps and warranties insurance, and you pay a premium. And if something like that were to happen, you can save your money. Wow. So my point is that there's a lot of different things like that that are now happening. So getting good counsel and advice from both the lawyers and the investment bankers on a transaction is going to be key. That's really cool. On that note, I... I wanted to ask, how does a company get started in either a merger or an acquisition? Is it something like this, the founder's thinking, I need it? I mean, what have you seen in that? Yeah, great question. So oftentimes what will happen is the founders have been at this for some number of years. They've mm -hmm. created something of incredible value. Austin is a great place for that because they have lots and lots of startups. Mm -hmm. They get a certain number of years into it and they say, I've got enough value on the table here in terms of the value of my business that I think I want to go off and try and sell this and put that money in my pocket, mm -hmm. go do something different. Mm -hmm. And so they can begin to interview investment banks to see if there's any interest out there. And the banks typically will know for their particular industry segment if there's going to be some interest for something like okay. that. And they'll say, yeah, we can help you with that. And you go through a selection process with the banks and then they'll run a nine to 12 month process that hopefully will result in multiple buyers vying for your business and you cash out. I've always been curious about at what point do you, are you just waiting for someone to come to you and say, I, I like your business? Because mm -hmm. you hear all the time this person got acquired by another person yeah. or this business got acquired by another business. And, and frankly, that can happen. Uh, for instance, influence that was mm -hmm. already starting to happen. Unsolicited inquiries. Mm -hmm. Hey, we, we see what you're growing there and you guys are doing really well. Uh, would you like to think about selling the business? And that's oftentimes a good indicator that you probably have created enough value and you're probably in the right state uh, to run a process. Yeah, but it sounds like e even if those inquiries are coming in, you still want to go find the right investment banker. Absolutely. Uh, just to protect yourself and create that element of competition that I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, to get the best deal. So at what point does someone seek advice? To, like we talked about investment banking, but what about consulting? Great point. I've got a good example of that from Fluence. So 
our little accounting finance team could only handle so much work between their regular day jobs and other things going on, and so occasionally you need some temporary help. That due diligence process can be quite consuming and overwhelming. It's practically a, another person. And so what we did is we chose to bring in a consultant for a period of time, I want to say about three or four months, to help us get all of our records in order, get them placed in the due, in the due diligence data room in the right place, help us with some schedules on the audit and so forth mm-hmm. in a way that we didn't just have to full-fledged hire a full employee. Right. Yeah, and then I'd add, you know, beyond the acquisition, after the acquisition has occurred, in many cases, we're brought on to help companies as now they're trying to combine these two entities. And uh, maybe trying to simplify things a little bit, you have two organizations that have their own business process, their own culture. They use different pieces of technology. So they have their own accounting software. They have their own sales software, their own e-commerce software. And really, a, a significant amount of diligence needs to be performed to take inventory of that, identify how the new organization that's going to be coming together wants to operate. Is there one sales software that one company uses that we think is better than the other and that they would be able to support them? And if so, it'd be great to try to consolidate that into one platform. Same thing with business process, with organizational alignment. We're looking for ways to really streamline and standardize things. There's no doubt that as going through an M&A activity, you know, companies are looking to identify efficiencies mm-hmm. uh, where they can really come together and operate more effectively and bring value to customers with less internal costs, right? And so being able to identify that and come together um, is, is an activity that we get brought in to really help customers, or excuse me, help companies after they're going through the acquisition. Makes sense. So Jeff, what factors contribute to companies failing to achieve their m goals and technology? Yeah, one thing I really see is around people and change management. You know, when two businesses merge or one acquires another, there's great uncertainty with the employees at those organizations. They're, they're curious, is my job safe? Am, am I going to lose my job? What are the new expectations for me in my role? Is my responsibilities, are they going to change? Will, will my management structure change? How will I be um, you know, rewarded and recognized and evaluated as an employee. And so with that comes great anxiety and uncertainty. And so one of the most important things that I've found is having a really solid change management play, plan in place, right? So a real good change management management plan really lays out, you know, the, the implications and the impact of what this change is for, the benefits of it, uh, really trying to, you know, provide transparency, uh, eliminate confusion and, and uncertainty with people so they understand what is this change, why are we going through this change, and why does that benefit me and the company? Uh, and I, I'd say the biggest key of that is really having genuine and authentic buy-in from top-level leadership. So if the CEO or your C-level or your VPs, if they say one thing but don't really care about it, that's going to trickle down to the employees and they're not going to be really invested in the cause. If, on the other hand, they're really committed to what this change is about and they're really buying in and they're communicating that and, and really exhibiting that this is important and critical, people will truly take ownership of that. Mm-hmm. They will buy in and they will go and be above and beyond to make sure that this new change is successful. Yeah, that makes me think about what we talked about earlier, the, keeping the, the cultures and trying to figure out what the culture will be going forward. If you're just doing processes and focus on the technology and not thinking about the people, people are scared. At the end of the day, it's like, what's going to happen to my job? And I'm not talking about managers. I'm talking about the rest of the company. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I'd say one of the big uh, 
concerns anytime one company gets acquired is they hear horror stories of other companies that got acquired and then people get laid off, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think truly coming in and being transparent and open with your employees uh, and really trying to articulate and communicate what you envision as the plan for them and the company uh, as much as you can is, is really critical to obtain that buy-in and make sure that while there could be some uncertainty for a period of time, uh, it is alleviated and people move forward. Really insightful. That's such great insight from insiders that are in the field. Thank you both so much for being on the show. I learned so much, and I'm sure the audience also as well. Great. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you again, Scott and Jeff. It was fascinating to hear some of the technical aspects that go into building processes and how it can save organizations time and money in the long run. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe and maybe share it with a friend or coworker. Growth and Scale Insiders is created in partnership between Bridgepoint Consulting and Founding Media. To learn more about Bridgepoint, please visit the links in our show notes.